Hi, welcome to the Sage's Cabin podcast. I'm your host, Rox Madeira. So grab a cup of tea and come and join me in the Sage's Cabin as we chat about everything from herbal gardening, herbal medicine, movement practices, wild food, postnatal and just general well-being. So the main aim of the podcast is that it's being offered as a tool for our communities to learn from and to empower ourselves. So it's an education. Um, so hopefully you will get some education and learn some new things from the podcasts. You will also notice that I am aiming to amplify the voice of British herbalists as I just don't really hear them a lot on the podcasts channels that are out there already. And that's not to say that you might also hear me talking to uh, practitioners from anywhere around the world as well. So you'll also see a lot of the authors that I speak to are uh, published by Aeon Books, who are small publishers based in the UK, and they've got lots of really interesting herbal books, so check them out. Um, after the podcast as well, I will be reviewing some of the books for the Herb Society, and the Herb Society just aims to increase the understanding and use of herbs for health and well-being, um, and people can join as a member, and just to say I am an ambassador, which is why I'm telling you about it. I think just trying to bring out as much herbal knowledge to people as possible in the most accessible way as possible. So check them out as well. So if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe and share. And I hope you enjoy it. Today's podcast, I'm talking to Marie Riley, and she is a herbalist based in Ireland, and she specialises in um, reproductive health. If you'd like to buy the book, the uh, Aeon Books are offering a 20% discount for the next month, so until the 7th of January 2022. Um, if you put in the code RH20, you can get 20% off, and I'll put that in the show notes. Hi there. Hi, yeah. Uh, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. I'm good. Good, good. Um, I wonder if we could just maybe start with just you saying like who you are, what what it is that you do in your speciality. Yeah, so my name is Marie Riley and I'm a medical herbalist and I also um, do nutritional therapy as well. Um, I have been working, well, I have a clinic myself in Lismore and County Waterford in Ireland. Um, and that's a multidisciplinary health clinic. So we have lots of other, um, therapies as well. So acupuncture and chiropractic and counseling and all these kind of things, which is great. And I have my practice here as well. So I see people privately. Um, and it's very much like, in a way, um, what you would like to see from orthodox medicine, you go see a doctor, but you sit down and when you talk to a herbalist, um, we would be looking in a very holistic way, um, you know, looking at the whole person and all of the symptoms. And then, you know, some of the types of examinations that you do as a medical herbalist might be quite similar to what GPs do. Um, but then you're bringing in that holistic view and rather than using, using orthodox medicines, you're using 
plants and herbs and with the nutritional therapy foods and um maybe nutritional supplements as well to you're really more trying to rather than solving problems you're more trying to promote the health of the person you know the good health and then you know if, if somebody has good health then the problems a lot of them will kind of resolve themselves almost yeah just, that sounds yeah. great and is, are you do you specialize in um reproductive health because you've obviously got a new book about that yes i i i do <laughs> in a way in the sense that that was just something that um i suppose reproductive health is one area where orthodox medicine has relatively little to offer that is very effective and very safe mm-hmm. so um you know, and I, and I think there's a lot of uh, people with reproductive health problems who would feel that they're not, you know, their needs aren't really met with orthodox medicine. So, you know, for example, I think there's been a lot um, in the media and online recently about women with endometriosis, particularly, and how they feel they're really overlooked and, you know, that they, they haven't been helped at all. Um and for things like endometriosis, you know, the, the treatments that are available, you know, it's kind of putting people into premature menopause temporarily. Um, and then usually the problem will come back and, and the premature menopause will have uh, or the temporary menopause will have lots of side effects. Um, you know, with most other reproductive health problems, it's purely the contraceptive pill seems to be offered as the answer to everything. And that's fine if it agrees with somebody and um, and if they're not wishing to get pregnant. But obviously it doesn't agree with everybody. If somebody wants to get pregnant, there's, you know, obviously that's not going to be um, a good solution. And then you have, you know, things like IVF. If somebody's trying to get pregnant, success rate's only about 25% per cycle. And it's very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. um and and you know loads of side effects um and then you know things like menopause you know there's a big push for hrt at the moment um and you know there were um you know it was in the media before about the risks that can be associated with hrt particularly for women who have um had a history of breast cancer and those kind of things um so yeah this this the options for reproductive health in orthodox medicine aren't great. Um, And yet at the same time, it's something that natural medicine can do really, really well. So I guess, you know, when, when women have that experience that they're not finding other solutions and then they try herbal medicine and it works really well, then you end up (laughs) seeing a lot of those kind of issues. Uh, that's interesting because yeah because I think a lot of people get overlooked quite a lot of, and um and yeah you kind of almost like kind of feel like people are kind of railroaded into like for example the HRT or whatever and they don't really know there's other options mm-hmm. it's it's good to hear this like the herbal medicine can have a big impact Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah definitely I wonder if we could maybe start off actually just kind of with like an overview of like the female reproductive and infertility kind of issues um yeah um that's that's a very big topic big question I know sorry (laughs) yeah absolutely so um yeah and I guess it it's something that affects I mean obviously you know the book is 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 all about reproductive health so you know one thing I would say is there is a lot of 
uh, when I started writing it, it, it was about fertility. And then, you know, I realized then that all of the things that I was writing about that affect fertility, I thought, well, this also affects people who aren't trying to conceive. You know, even if you don't want to have a baby, you don't, you know, if you have endometriosis or you have PCOS or you have all these other symptoms, it's still a big issue. So that kind of made the book a bit broader in that sense. So, um, yeah, and I suppose then the the very common things would be, for example, premenstrual symptoms. So, you know, that's very, very common. Um so, you know, things like mood changes, which can be minor in some people, but can be kind of fairly catastrophic in others, people who have premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, it really can ruin their lives. Um, and then there can be the physical symptoms associated with that as well, you know, and if you, you know, there's information about it out there and the list of symptoms are so long but you know common ones would be things like breast tenderness or bloating or fatigue or feeling generally miserable and that can be for up to two weeks in every cycle and for some women the cycle is only 21 days so that's you know spending the majority of your life feeling fairly miserable um and there you know there's the reality of that and how it affects people's lives but then you know in terms of fertility there if somebody comes with um difficulty conceiving then you know often there could be the case that they're not given any reason they've had some investigations and nothing has shown up and that's known as unexplained infertility mm-hmm. and that's a very um frustrating diagnosis for people because you know in orthodox medicine if you've no diagnosis then how do you know how to treat um other than you offer ivf and then that doesn't always work Mm -hmm. so but for herbalists when when somebody comes um with that kind of a diagnosis then you're looking at some of the other symptoms and you're thinking well that symptom that premenstrual symptom so for example if somebody has breast tenderness that can mean they have high levels of the hormone prolactin which can interfere with infertility so there you have a clue you know if they have certain other premenstrual symptoms it could mean you know they have excessive levels of estrogen which can interfere with fertility or you know not enough progesterone so sometimes you know when you're looking at somebody's symptoms it's not just that you're about treating those symptoms but you're also finding clues about what's actually wrong and even when somebody comes with inf- uh, unexplained uh, infertility you as a herbalist you will nearly all f- always find some imbalance somewhere and once you found that imbalance often it's something quite minor in a way you know as in like it, it causes a major problem but it's something that's easy to correct um and and it's it's almost like you're just giving somebody a little nudge you know that there's something just slightly off about their health or their hormones um and that's kind of interfering with their fertility or causing them symptoms and all it takes is really just a slight adjustment get them back to health and then everything works fine and once the reproductive system is working if they want to conceive then you know that's going to be easy Whereas um, the um, the IVF and those kind of interventions, I feel that often in many cases, they're just like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. You know, they're not always yeah. necessary and they're not always the right thing. Sometimes they are the right thing, 
um, quite obviously. a limited chance as well, don't you, with IVF? Maybe like, I mean, here, obviously, we've got them on the NHS for a, for a certain number. And then it's kind of almost like it it kind of gives you that hope. And then if that's if that's that your last resort and then, mm. you know, what, what did you do after that? If you don't get pregnant. It's quite disheartening, I imagine. Absolutely. And then I suppose another issue that comes up then is you know where people actually do need IVF I mean there are some situations where it just is necessary and it it will be the only way um you know so if there are um problems with the father's sperm you know that that it just cannot you know if he doesn't have sperm for example or if the motility is too low um Mm -hmm. you know or if egg donation is needed or if there are structural things where, you know, it just cannot happen, um, then, you know, the IVF is necessary. So a lot of patients will then feel, well, if I've got this limited chance, then I have to get myself as healthy as possible and improve the chances as much as possible. Mm. And then, you know, that's another way you can use herbal medicine and other alternative therapies to maximize your chances to make sure everything is ready. So when this, when you have this procedure, that it has the most chance of being successful. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And for people, is it for people who have got like, um, recurrent pregnancy loss where it's like they're constantly getting pregnant but then maybe having a lot of miscarriages are there things that herbalists can do for that as well absolutely um i suppose again the first thing is to try and establish um what's going on um one thing i think is really unfortunate i don't know how it is in the uk but um certainly here they don't really investigate very thoroughly until somebody has lost three pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I suppose that's because, you know, one miscarriage um, is very, very common. um, And it's, it's far more than we know. So, you know, obviously, we we know about the statistics of uh, the people who, you know, seek medical attention, have a confirmed pregnancy and and then lose it. But at least as many again are getting pregnant and either miscarrying alone or, you know, miscarrying before they even knew that they were pregnant. So there's probably about a third of pregnancies being lost. So it's very, very common. So I guess you don't want to start, you know, doing loads of investigations there when, um you know, that happens for to lots of people for various different reasons. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it will ever happen again. You know, it can just be one of those things. Um, but I think, you know, if somebody goes on to lose a second pregnancy, um, the chances of that being a recurrent issue are much higher. And I think, you know, I suppose a lot of kind of health decisions are around money and funding and those kind of things but I think mm-hmm. it's, it's quite cruel that you don't start investigating until somebody's mm-hmm. lost three pregnancies because of the emotional impact of that so I think you know to, to try and encourage people if they have lost a second pregnancy to to get what um what information they can I mean there's certain things that can be looked at blood tests and so on um but then you know from a natural health perspective to try and see if you can find some kind of imbalances there. So, you know, looking at things like egg quality, that can be improved with herbs, nutrition, sperm quality. There, there, you know, obviously if there's some issue 
with the quality of either of those, then that will make it more likely that the pregnancy is not viable. Mm -hmm. And then it's also looking at the hormonal picture of the mother and, you know, does she have some deficiencies, you know, progesterone deficiency? Is there some kind of immune issue that maybe is um is is causing the pregnancy loss <clears throat> other illnesses like you know thyroid problems and pcos and things like that can can cause uh or increased risk of pregnancy loss and there could be structural things as well so i suppose it's always about finding the cause um mm-hmm. and and improving the health of everything and making it less likely then that that will happen yeah, and it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because because by the time they've kind of if they would come to you, it's a very emotive time where it's almost like, what well, is it ever going to happen? Should can I do anything about it at this point? Because yes, it's quite sad. Um, but that's interesting to know that you there's a lot of research that you can do around it that probably a lot of I don't know. So it feels like a lot of doctors don't necessarily do. Um, so. I was just wondering, is there things that people could do for themselves? Just first of all, just as a general kind of um, general things that people could do to help their their general kind of reproductive health. Sure. And um, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very I suppose the way I work is very, very individual. You know, you talk to the individual and then you come up with a specific kind of program for them, depending mm-hmm. on you know what their needs are um but um kind of in general I suppose um and I and I noticed this as well when I was writing the book because obviously it's all researched and everything as well I mean you know I I like to kind of base everything on established research um you know there there would be obviously an element of my experience as well but I, I will always go back and look at the research and I I noticed that when I was researching all the different conditions um the same themes were coming up all the time so you know one of them was um kind of exposure to um what we call xenoestrogens in the environment so we know that regular estrogen if you have too much of it um or if you're sensitive to it can be um trigger cancer so you know some breast cancers womb cancer those kind of things um and it's thought that one of the reasons that though the incidence of that might be increasing is because there's lots of chemicals in our environment that kind of mimic estrogen in the body and they're actually more aggressive and and are more cancer causing so you know things like um plastic residues so you know heating food in plastic containers drinking out of plastic bottles that type of thing um, can be a problem. And um, and also pesticides and um, and those kind of chemicals as well can, can trigger estrogen receptors in the body and cause problems. Um, I mean, obviously on the extreme end, it's that they're cancer causing, but they can also disrupt the general um, hormone functioning. So it's trying to stay away from those as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one issue and um and then other um you know then there's other ways of helping to manage kind of hormone imbalances with when people have things like premenstrual syndrome i mean with in terms of herbs you'd probably need to see someone for kind of individual advice but um the other things that would have very good research are the b-complex vitamins 
um, and magnesium. Um, those those can help to um, balance hormones very well and are quite safe in, in the normal recommended dosages. Um, and then for people who have like pain and inflammation, period pain, breast tenderness, those kind of things, um, things like starflower oil, again, very, very safe, you know, no major kind of contraindications. Um, and I suppose that's the thing about advising about herbs is not every herb suits every person and depending what medication they're on, what other um, health problems they have, it might not be suitable. So it's it's generally best to, to see a herbalist, I think, um, and, and get. But I mean, if you're talking there about just people generally and their, um, I suppose, improving their health and, and focusing on their reproductive health, they would be some of the things. And then on the male side, um, you know, zinc is very important. So sometimes people take supplements, but sometimes it's even just more about, you know, having, including those things in their diet, you know, so nuts and seeds and things like that for zinc. Um, and, you know, things like lycopene from tomatoes. So having that um, kind of varied diet even can provide a lot of those nutrients. And one of the things that was one of the things that came up again and again with all the different reproductive health conditions were that kind of eating too much red meat, too, too much in the way of animal fats was having a negative effect particularly for people with things like fibroids and endometriosis and other um, reproductive health conditions like that. Mm. And that, you know, um, having plenty of different colored fruits and vegetables was really beneficial, you know, and, and we know that in terms of things like cancer prevention, but also in terms of balancing hormones and estrogen balance and things like that, they can be really important. And one thing as well the one other thing that's really good is um what we call the phytoestrogens so these are um plant constituents that are found in um nuts and seeds and beans and pulses um particularly and the particular the, the i suppose one of the richest source would be fermented soya products so things like um tofu and tempeh and miso and those kind of things and um there has been controversy about those in the past um the reason being that it was probably 30 or more years ago it was noticed that women in um, some asian countries where they were eating a lot of soya weren't getting as much in the way of menopausal symptoms and um, so then it was discovered that these phytoestrogens in food are kind of acting a little bit like estrogen in the body and helping to relieve those symptoms. So when that happened at the start, of course, a concern was there. Well, if they are acting like estrogen in the body, is there a potential that they could be cancer causing? And should we, you know, advise people who have had a history of breast cancer um, to avoid these so that was a kind of a cautionary thing and then there's been huge amounts of research done on them over the last 30 or so years um, you know individual studies um, 
you know, and then kind of taking loads of individual studies and putting them together and doing a systemic analysis of all of this. And it's come out conclusively that while these um, constituents, uh, phytoestrogens, do um, decrease symptoms in menopause and act like estrogens, they have no cancer-causing effects whatsoever. Um, and in fact, if anything, they will block the, the damaging estrogens from, from doing the damage. Um, so th they're very interesting in that they are helpful if you don't have enough estrogen, say during menopause or earlier in your life. Um, so for people who have, say, very light periods and, and low estrogen levels, um, but also if somebody has high estrogen levels and they have heavy bleeding and um, fibroids and things like that, they're also helpful. So um, it's it's really this, interesting. Is this, um, sorry, fermented soy rather than just norm, like processed soy that we're talking about? Well, um, ordinary soya, so, you know, things like soya milk and things like that, will that it does contain them for sure. Um, but the process of fermenting the soya increases the level of phytoestrogens very significantly, and it also helps your body to absorb them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I suppose, that's the way those foods are traditionally prepared as well, is by fermentation and, and probably for that reason that they're more effective um but you even even the non-fermented soy products will contain them but maybe not at quite such high levels and as a, is there much research on how it affects men um well again with there, there isn't as much research because i suppose a lot of the research was focused on you know the um effects in terms of relieving symptoms in menopause and you know and then trying to establish whether there um whether there was any cancer causing effects so but there would be some research in men um so you know it again with men it's it's less clear cut and you certainly wouldn't necessarily be recommending that somebody would take any phytoestrogen supplements as a male but, you know, men can suffer um, problems from having too much estrogen as well. You know, men will have estrogen in their body um, a certain amount, which is normal. Um, and it's up to the liver to make sure that that estrogen is metabolized and removed from the body um, and that it doesn't build up to too high levels, particularly in men. And... Um, if there are problems with the liver, which, you know, if somebody, if their alcohol use is a bit on the higher side, or, you know, if there's, if they're taking medications that kind of um, interfere with liver function, or certain drugs, or if, you know, if they're just, it's part of their genetics that they, they have poor liver function, then estrogen can build up. So then you, um, you can see, you know, the starts of almost breast development in some men um it's called gynecomastia um and it's also possible for men to get breast cancer um it's it's much more rare than it is in in women but it, it does happen um and i suppose in a way when it does happen it's likely to be more of a problem because um 
you know, men are not on the lookout for breast lumps in the way that hopefully most women are, you know, they're not um, involved in screening programs Mm -hmm. and they are more likely to ignore signs like that. Do you know what I mean? You know, I think for for the most part, um, you know, women will seek help more often if they are concerned about their health, whereas unfortunately men are more likely to ignore things like that for a longer period of time. And I'd say most men wouldn't even occur to them in a million years that a man could get breast cancer. Yeah. Um, so for for males, you know, having not too much, you know, in the way of kind of red meat, avoiding the xenoestrogens and having a diet that's rich in nuts and seeds and beans and pulses and that type of thing is is really beneficial. It's interesting isn't it? because there's quite a lot that you can do with diet, but it's there's such a big kind of, I don't know, there's such a big thing around diet. There's so many different like fad diets and this way of eating and that way of eating that it gets really, really confusing for people. I think like what ha- what one person's telling you, you know, I don't know, don't, don't eat meat and somebody else is telling you do eat meat and somebody else is telling you don't eat carbs and, you know, it's all very confusing I think for people absolutely and it, I mean but one of the things like you're saying there that you can do so much with diet and that was one of the reasons why um I kind of focus a lot on nutrition um is because I was finding that with her I mean her is amazing you know they can do amazing things and bring out amazing changes but if somebody isn't taking the right diet you know if they are lacking in something or if they are eating things that are disagree with disagreeing with them you really you're very limited as to how far you can get you know because you're just banging your head against a brick wall the whole time so that was why I really started to focus on the nutrition but you're absolutely right that they there's the advice is so conflicting and I think the reason that that is the case is that people are individuals and there is no one diet so you know a lot of people say who you know, would promote a vegan diet will say everybody should be vegan. Um, You know, I mean, some people are saying that from kind of an ethical standpoint, which is which is a different issue. But from a health standpoint, um, absolutely, um, a a vegan diet. I mean, I suppose there are issues around, um, you know, some nutrients, particularly the B vitamins being, you know, lacking and having to, you know, be much more careful about introducing those. But I mean, either a vegan or a very heavy plant-based diet really does suit, um, you know, say people with high estrogen levels that have fibroids and endometriosis and things like that. Um, But it doesn't suit everybody. Um, And then on the other end of the scale, somebody for example who has diabetes um, and is finding it difficult to control something more like a ketogenic diet which wouldn't really have very much in the way of beans pulses starchy vegetables but would have more kind of meat and fish and things like that that will suit them much better Mm -hmm. um likewise you know you hear a lot about raw food diets and you know if you're a person that has a lot of heat in your body a lot of inflammation if you live in a warm climate then that might suit you very well if you have very robust digestion that can can handle a lot of raw foods 
But, you know, somebody who is a little bit more depleted living in a cold, damp country like Ireland, it is not going to suit them at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the thing is that this one size fits all, uh, you know, everyone should be keto, everyone should be vegan, everyone should be raw. It just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And it's a shame because there's a lot of like, um, oh, what's the word? Um, like people get really kind of, emotive about their particular diet and sort of really push it and everybody else has to has to be that way which is a shame and yeah I think I think probably one of the I think one of the main things people could remember is just to try and eat um as little processed things as foods as things foods as possible Um, and I mean there are some things that are kind of universally good and bad you know so like and other than somebody has a nut allergy, nuts and seeds are really, are really good. You know, they're really like, you know, they, they're not, well, unless you have processed nuts, but you know, if you have like fresh things like that, they are, they're not processed, you know, they have a good protein content. Um, they have loads of kind of vitamins and minerals and, and, um, you know, and if you have the seeds as well, you know, they, you know, things like flax seeds will have, kind of hormonal balancing effects you know they help your gut so like other than that somebody has an allergy they're 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 really good Mm -hmm. um the vegetables you know a good range of um i mean the green vegetables are are great you know um again not just cancer preventing but also hormone balancing helping the body to process toxins and estrogens and all of these kind of things um and you know and then trying to get loads of colors so purple fruits and vegetables are rich in resveratrol which has great health benefits um you know so that's kind of other than that you know and then there's some people who can't like digest cabbage and things like that because they have uh, micro microbiome issues but you know other than that um you know that they're they're generally good and then as you say yeah processed food um trans fats in processed food are kind of pretty much universally bad Mm. you couldn't say that's good for anybody um and sugar refined sugar is probably one of the most damaging things promotes inflammation in the body promotes insulin resistance really messes up with messes up your hormones um Mm. you know so yeah i think if everyone even did that much you know have a have a diet that's like has whether you're eating meat or not eating meat that you still have loads and loads of vegetables that that's your base um nuts seeds <clears throat> i would say for most people beans and pulses as well um again some people have digestive issues around those um and avoiding sugar and avoiding processed foods you know if people did that much it would be it would be huge and then of course there's all the other things that people do that aren't related to diet so like smoking probably the worst possible thing you can do for your health so you know generally we know that I mean we've known for a long time about lung cancer more recent we know about other cancers we know about its effect on heart disease but it has a massive impact on fertility as well so um you know in males it affects every stage of sperm production DNA integrity um you know, even blood vessels supplying the reproductive organs. 
same in women it um will you know interfere with egg production and maturation interferes with circulation to the uterus and ovaries interferes with hormone balance you know contributes to early pregnancy loss prematurity cot death everything it's it's just absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do um yeah but then there's other lifestyle factors as well isn't there links like exercise and um that people yeah include. oh yeah definitely so exercise um and with exercise it's it's a balance you know so like we know definitely exercise is important um so if you don't exercise you know you can end up with bowel sluggishness that can affect your whole pelvic region it can bowel sluggishness can affect the um estrogen levels and how well you're getting those out of your body um and you know just your metabolism generally and circulation generally so so it is important and it it is a factor in fertility and reproductive health even down to women with painful periods will often find that if they exercise regularly the pain will be much less and if they're more stagnant then pain will be much worse um so that's an issue but also in women particularly um over exercising can be as much of an issue as under exercising so you know women who do kind of very strenuous exercise for more than an hour a day um will often their periods will often stop because you know the body will feel that it's you know i suppose it's nature it's nature saying obviously this body is under too much stress yeah. um, and is not in a position to reproduce right now so so that will stop the periods and you know you see it in in female athletes often you know if they are training for an hour or more a day intensely they won't have periods um and often that for them that's uh, that's a lifestyle choice and of course that's absolutely fine if they don't you know if they're not interested in reproducing and they are focused on being an athlete and they don't mind then you know that's that's a choice but you you do sometimes see women who don't know that um and they feel like they're in, want to improve their health and they really go at the exercise um, mm. and then it, it interferes with their reproductive function yeah 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 and I think as well we kind of we think of exercise we, when we say exercise we automatically just think oh we have to go into the gym and we have to go and work out there but it doesn't have to be that I mean it can just be moving generally anyway throughout your day just as long as you're kind of not sedentary basically I think exactly yeah and I mean for some people it's it's easy because you know if you're a farmer or a gardener <laughs> you know or doing some other kind of manual work then you know you're just moving all the time but you know for somebody sitting at a desk all day which people are increasingly yeah. you know it's it's really important even just when not just the exercising but even just getting up and moving around yeah every so often it is really important um but also i think from an exercise point of view i mean because so many people are at a desk all day um in that way you know it probably is important that they do some form of exercise to kind of counteract mm -hmm. their sitting for most of the day but the number of people who you know like they they kind of feel like they're torturing themselves with exercise you know you're not going to get the full benefits if you're finding it really stressful so yeah. It's probably about finding something that you enjoy. You know, you yeah. don't have to punish yourself at the gym. Yeah. You're dancing, do you know? Yeah. Um, 
some find something that you enjoy you know it doesn't have to be punishing yourself yeah yeah and actually when you say that when I was just thinking when you say that and you're saying an hour a day it's actually not very much like it is somebody could just go to the gym for an hour or so to work out at the end of the day and think okay that's me done my exercise not Mm -hmm. thinking that's quite a lot of stress and it's well I suppose it depends how strenuous they're being with yes yeah yeah but if they're really you know yes they're really like going for it yeah exactly and and you'll see that then because you know the periods might start becoming more light or more irregular and things like that and then it's also you know if you're kind of coupling over exercising with dieting um then that will have an effect as well because you know if they're if the body isn't being sufficiently nourished that will also turn you know interfere with the reproductive function yeah which is something that you see all the time isn't it like women who are just yo-yo dieting strenuous exercise trying to get into shape for i don't know summer holidays or something and then lots of stress eating badly not sleeping and then wondering why we've got reproductive issues yeah and it's i suppose the um the basic things in in life are you know things like diet exercise you know the right amount of exercise sleep stress people massively underestimate the impact of those on their health Mm -hmm. um you know so like I, i do have people coming and you know they're looking for treatment for fatigue or you know other other symptoms like that and you know you ask them how much are they sleeping and you realize they're only maybe sleeping six hours a night mm-hmm. um, and that it's just not enough for them and because they've been doing that for months or years there's just a chronic chronic level of exhaustion there mm-hmm. and they don't really understand you know the how much of that is an impact they will say you know they're just busy and they have a lot to do in the evenings and you know um and then by the time they're finished and then they feel like they need to wind down you know and then it's maybe half past 12 by the time they're getting to sleep and then they're getting up at six o'clock because work and mm-hmm. you think yeah well you're going to be tired you just are but you would be surprised how many people it just does not register. They actually think there's something wrong with me. I'm unwell. And it's just something as simple as that. Or they're eating something like the number of people, particularly in Ireland, who don't get on with wheat is huge. Um, and and it's just kind of dragging them down, just that one small thing, dragging them down, destroying their health. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or again, somebody just having no exercise and just it kind of sapping their vitality. Mm-hmm. Um, and they genuinely don't put two and two together, you know? Yeah. Well, hopefully this will make people think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so do you take people, um, on like the Zoom for consultations as well as in your clinic? I do, but, um, I mostly try and see people face to face if I can, because you get a much better, um, you know, um, feeling for who they are and what their problems are. You can examine them better. It just works way better. Um, Normally, if, if I'm seeing somebody from further afield, it's because, you know, they've been referred to me because, you know, maybe it's because of the specialism in the reproductive health or, you know, because they've had difficulty finding somebody who can address their their particular issues. Um, or sometimes, you know, other practitioners 
you know, will will want to come um, and see somebody. And, you know, it's not so bad then because, you know, they're they're practitioners themselves. So, you know, they can they can they can find out a lot of information as well. Um, And for that, I mean, I know there are a lot of people now consulting a lot on Zoom and um, but I suppose one thing I feel is there, say, particularly in the UK, there are so many herbalists um, and good herbalists. And, you know, there's not really necessarily a need to be seeing somebody far away. Yeah. Um, I think really we as herbalists, to you know, my preference would be that we will be referring to each other and, and helping yeah. people to find somebody closer to them that can help them. And um, the organization, I'm in an organization in the UK, uh, the National Institute of Med- Medical Herbalists, and they have a website and they have a search function on their website that you can find somebody close to you. Um, and so, you know, they're the oldest existing herbalist organization. Um, they have a high standard of training. You know, all of their members have to do continuing professional development. Um, and so I think at least if somebody found somebody from an organization like that, there's another similar organization called the CPP, um, who, you know, also would have similar standards of training and, um, you know, and continuing professional development. So, you know, for somebody to find somebody close to them is is probably a bit more beneficial and more sustainable and so on, you know. There's also the issue that I can't really post herbal medicines to people in the UK very easily, yeah. especially since Brexit. And, and anyway, it's not a very sustainable thing to be doing. Yes. Yeah medicines all over the place when there's probably another herbalist down the road but yeah. I would recommend that anyone seeing a herbalist would go to you know go through a professional organization like that um because as the law stands um you know it's not a protected title people don't you know necessarily have um you know that higher standard of training so I and I think with with your health it's really important that you're kind of assured that somebody is properly trained and and that they know when because there are times when you know you would notice something that's potentially serious and that that person would know when to refer on to orthodox medical care yeah 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 and so just back to your book is that written for just kind of anybody or is it specifically for practitioners or both yeah, well, it is um, It is more aimed at practitioners. Um, so, you know, because it is quite in-depth and quite technical. Um, mm. But I suppose, you know, some um, patients or people who would have reproductive health problems themselves, they might have, um, you, you know, the, a certain understanding or, you know, they might be from a medical background themselves, you know, if they're a nurse or a doctor themselves um or another practitioner so it might be quite interesting for them um it's not necessarily only for herbalists though um because um, while herbs are covered you know the bulk of the book really is about um the problems themselves and and getting a really in-depth understanding of them um because i know you know you get this thing oh take this for that take this for that condition um but 
I find myself, and I think this is why, you know, the treatments that I've given people have been so effective, is because if you really understand the nuts and bolts of what's going on with somebody, you can really target the treatment really, really well. Uh, and then it's going to be more effective. So I suppose the bulk of the book really is kind of understanding what's going on with all these health conditions. Um, and then a lot of it would be nutrition as well. So, you know, that applies, you know, that advice can be given by anybody. Um, so for for nurses, doctors, um, acupuncturists, you know, any anybody dealing with people who um, have reproductive health problems it could be useful for sounds really interesting i'm looking forward to, to um, having a look and reading reading it um thank you for your time um it's been really interesting and i hope i think it's going to be beneficial for lots of people great thank you thank you